Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome again to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse, and I'm the pastor here. I have the privilege of serving on our elder team and the privilege right now of walking with you into God's Word as we, we pick up in our series on Jesus' upside-down kingdom, a series in which we've been hearing from Jesus about just how different it is to, to live as citizens of His kingdom as opposed to the kingdoms of this world, and most recently, how different it is in terms of living rightly before God. How in Jesus' kingdom, the, the expectation is not for the outside-only sort of righteousness that, that many seem so, so satisfied with, but with the, an inside-out sort of righteousness seen most clearly in Jesus himself, an inside-out sort of righteousness in which Rage is replaced with a desire for reconciliation. Sexual perversions are replaced with a desire for sexual purity. And in which the the lack of integrity so endemic in our age is replaced with a character and commitment that today is just plain out of place. Well, before turning his attention elsewhere... Jesus concludes his focus on this inside-out sort of righteousness by describing what it looks like in terms of justice. And that's what we're going to focus on today, this upside-down justice of Jesus' kingdom. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to where uh, Jesus picks that up in Matthew chapter 5. And you can follow along with me as I read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, through to the end of the chapter, in verse 48. This is God's word. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask today, even as we look into this one last time, this inside-out sort of righteousness that Jesus calls us to, a righteousness that exceeds even that of the religious leaders of his day, I pray that, that even today with 
whatever we, we experience, whatever comes our way, whatever opportunities you provide us, we would, we would live that out before you in reflection of what you've done for us. Not only sending the, the sun and the rain on, on the evil and the good, but ultimately sending your son, Jesus Christ, and doing it in the most profoundest of ways to die on our behalf. I pray in his name that it would be so in our lives today. Amen. When Damien de Wooster arrived in Hawaii in 1864, the chain of islands was already beset with a number of infectious diseases, but none worse than the leprosy that so devastated the lives of those who contracted it, literally eating away at them, their eyes and their skin and their limbs, until after disfigurement, the disease ultimately left them immobile and up for dead. At the time, it was untreatable, highly contagious, so that its victims were by law consigned to an isolated portion of the island, surrounded by ocean on three sides and a 1,600-foot cliff on the other. But as devastating as isolation was, what made matters worse, was, even worse, was the fact that after successfully isolating the lepers, the government functionally turned a blind eye to them, cutting off supplies and removing almost all personnel and, and leaving the community to deteriorate into a dysfunctional chaos marked by poverty, alcoholism, violence, and promiscuity. So it was somewhat bewildering that this was the community Damien de Wooster decided to, to live among, and not by force, but of his own volition, giving of himself for the, the good of those who, who no one else seemed to care about, building their houses, burying their dead for over 10 years until the day that he contracted the disease himself, which ultimately took his life too. What I'm particularly interested in this morning, though, is what would drive a man to do that? What grows in them the courage to stand in the face of adversity and concern themselves with the cares of others? at the expense of themselves and leads one to ultimately sacrifice himself on their behalf. Where does that come from? The selflessness and self-sacrifice. Well, at least for Damien de Wooster, we don't really need to guess. Because as a follower of Jesus, his concern for the leper came from the one he was following. 
and the upside-down way of life that Jesus laid out even in our passage today. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we consider specifically the, the what and the who of Jesus' upside-down justice, which happens to be marked by the same selflessness and self-sacrifice displayed by Devuster. The what and the who of Jesus' upside-down justice. First, the what, which we find spelled out in this first section beginning in verse 38. When Jesus says once again, you have heard that it was said this time, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Rather, famous part of God's law found in at least three different places. But then once again, like, like so many others in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, this piece of the Old Testament, like so many others, had taken on a sort of life of its own. Because rather than used as God had intended it, as a restriction against personal vendetta, it had become a sort of prescription for personal vendetta. And here's what I mean. Originally, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was meant to restrict those like Lamech back in Genesis chapter 4, who was very proud of the fact that he had killed a man for wounding him and a young man for striking him. Do you remember his boasting of that to his wife? Actually, to his two wives. Because if the, the, the whole world... The problem, though, is that this... If the whole world, though goes around upping the ante like that from insult to injury and from bumping to butchery, it's not hard to envision how quickly society will spin out of control. I mean, just imagine for a second that you and I were walking down a, a sidewalk towards each other and I, I bump into you by accident and you turn around and clock me over the head. And so I pull out my lead pipe. And then you pull out your revolver. And all of a sudden, people are wondering why Colonel Mustard and, and Professor Plum are both lying dead on the conservatory floor. This is no good, right? This is no good. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was meant to stop such madness in its tracks. Because better an eye for an eye than someone turning around and taking off someone's head. But by Jesus' day, the law of lex talionis, the, the law of retaliation, was not only being used as a restriction against personal vendettas, but was being used as a prescription for personal vendettas. Because the limit also set the expectation. Yet as Gandhi would famously put it, even an eye for an eye eventually leaves the whole world blind. Well, Jesus saw this too, and so he called his followers living in his kingdom to something different, to a new sort of justice that is not just retaliatory, but redemptive. You've heard that it was said, 
But I say to you, verse 39, do not resist, do not oppose, do not set yourself against the one who is evil. Do not retaliate or stand, as it were, on your rights to demand justice from those who wrong you or your right to demand from others what they've taken from you. Which is quite the statement for us today, isn't it? Because we live in a society that suggests that our rights and the protection of those rights and the exercise of those rights is just about all that is worth fighting for. And yet Jesus says that in his kingdom, those rights are precisely what we're to lay down as a demonstration that we're living for something else. See, it, it makes sense that if this world is all there is and this life is all we get, that we'd guard our rights with every last breath we got. But if we're living as part of a kingdom that, like Jesus says elsewhere, is not of this world, then we should really go around, we shouldn't go around living like it is. Well, what is that? look like in the life of a believer. Jesus gives us a number of examples in the verses that follow, beginning with this idea that if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, you're to turn to him the other also. The, the right cheek in particular, meaning that they've, they've most likely backhanded you, not only as an act of violence, but as an insult to your personal dignity. Jesus says the answer isn't to, to backhand them in return, but what? To offer them the other cheek also. Which again, doesn't even the score, but diffuses the situation. And in a sense, even calls the offender to account. Because if they're going to slap you again on the other cheek, this time they can't use their backhand, they've got to use the front and treat you like the equal you are. And so by turning the other cheek, you actually step above the one who is trying to demean you. Well, so too. Jesus goes on and says that if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The, the tunic being quite literally the, the shirt off your back. Somebody's going to sue you for the shirt off your back. The, the cloak, though, being, being the, the, the other piece of clothing in that day that you would have worn. So that if they're going to take the shirt off your back, Jesus says, give them the only other thing you've got as well. Again, not to ramp up the situation, but to diffuse it in a way to shame the one doing it to you. That by your nakedness, they would see what they have done. So the follower of Jesus is to to give up their rights in order to demonstrate that there's more going on than meets the eye. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, Jesus says, go with them two miles. 
Here, probably referencing the right of a, a Roman soldier to conscript civilians to, to carry their equipment. But the law was quite strict. One mile was allowed, but no further. Well, Jesus says, go with them too. And show that soldier that you live by an upside-down sort of justice that does not demand retribution, but would instead gladly carry the armor to disarm the situation and potentially to even shame the one making such demands by doing for them what they wouldn't have dared demand for themselves. They may even been in trouble for if they found somebody found they were doing it. Well, so too, Jesus says in verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Not to say that you should give to, to every beggar you come by or, or loan to money to, to anyone without question or concern. Jesus isn't saying that. But that as a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't any more in your finances than with anything else live by the eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth mentality and be a tight-fisted, penny-pinching Scrooge who, who only ever cares about what's in it for you, about the return rate on the investment but rather that you would demonstrate even here that the money isn't really what you're living for. Because in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, this is what his upside-down justice looks like. Not a protecting of one's rights or demanding of one's rights, but a giving up of one's rights. That's the what. Now we've got to turn to the who. What Jesus lays out in this final, you've heard, but I say statement, beginning in verse 43. It starts with this, by saying, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What they had heard, though, was not in fact what God had said. Because while he had commanded them to love their neighbors, God had never said, to hate their enemies. And if you're just trying to work out the logic of this, that's not really the opposite of what God meant either, right? To love one's neighbors is not the opposite of hating one's enemies so that the one justifies the others. Not at all. They had come to that conclusion on their own, like a, a kid who thinks that eat your peas means that you could feed your carrots to the dog. No, that's not what I said, Junior. I wanted you to eat your carrots, too. I just was making a particular point about the peace. Well, so, too. God had never said, hate your enemies, nor meant that his people to conclude that from his command that they should love their neighbors. So Jesus, once again, calls his followers to a higher standard, saying, you've heard, but I say to you, verse 44, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, as in do for them what you're supposed to be doing for those neighbors. 
Why? Well, because as Jesus will point out later in his ministry, your neighbor isn't the one who's been a neighbor to you so much as the one who needs you to be a neighbor to them. Right? Isn't that what Jesus says to the lawyer who asks that very question? But who is my neighbor? To which Jesus replies by telling him the story of the Good Samaritan and how the Samaritan goes out of his way and at great expense to himself to help one who'd, who'd have traditionally been his enemy. And asks at the end, compared to the others in the story, the others who weren't so good, which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor? Well, the Good Samaritan, of course, to which Jesus says, yes, go and do likewise. Loving your enemies like that. And it's, and it's probably worth pointing out that love here is a verb, not a noun. Not something that we have or we fall into, but something that we do. And therefore, not so much a, a Valentine's, get shot by Cupid sort of love, as much as a, a Good Friday, Easter Sunday sort of love whether the object of that love is, is lovely or not. And one of the primary ways to love your enemies, Jesus says, is to pray for them. Which sort of flips the bill, doesn't it? Takes you from being a, a passive victim under someone else's thumb to being actively aligned with the one who holds the whole world in his hand. It's quite a different picture. But why are we to love? For a slap on the back and an attaboy? No, verse 45. So that Jesus says, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. It's for the family resemblance with our, our Father in heaven which has to do not so much with the shape of your nose or the color of your hair, but with the love that you extend to the unlovely. This justice that is of quite a different kind, right? A delayed kind of justice that leads with grace, even if ultimate justice is reserved for the future. A justice which for today is not seen in the, the calling to account of all wrongs any more than it's seen in the demanding of all our rights, but is seen in the shedding of God's Son on evil and good alike. The, the same evil individuals that Jesus said we are not to resist when they do evil to us. Because if all we do is love those who love us, that's not really what God looks like. And is why Jesus says, what reward then would you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Because even tax collectors, who, who had a much worse reputation back then than they do now, even in tax season, 
They had a much worse reputation back then. Even tax collectors who made a living on extortion, even they had friends and would look out for their own. So how are we any different than them if all we love are those who love us? Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Those who know nothing of God. No, the call under King Jesus is to live by a different kind of justice, a redemptive justice that doesn't demand its rights or uses them to build up barriers, but instead lays down those rights for the sake of others. That's the what. And does not just for those who deserve it, your friends, your family, your neighbors, whoever you'd put in that category, but does it for those who don't deserve it? The who. Let me circle back, though, to another part of this, another aspect of this that we've already touched on a little bit because it's been woven into this throughout, to what you might call the why. The why of this upside-down justice, which is where Jesus lands. Bringing really not just these verses, but this whole section to a close. Saying in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect whether it's with rage being replaced with a desire for reconciliation, sexual perversions being replaced with a desire for sexual purity, or the lack of integrity being replaced with a character and commitment that today is just plain out of place. Or with the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, love for my own, hate for everyone else, being replaced by this upside-down, inside-out justice marked by the selfless self-sacrifice of God himself. And don't miss that. Because this is not just some standard that God has called us to. But a lifestyle of following after God. Not a trail that we've got to bushwhack for ourselves, but rather one that he's blazed on our behalf. You know that term, bushwhacking? I really like that term. I really like it. It's a hiking term. It actually, I like it because it describes my favorite type of camping, right? When you're blazing the trail to the campsite that nobody's walked before, Right? I love bushwhacking, except if you're the guy in front. Except if you're the guy that has to make the way through all the thorns and the thickets, all the brush and the briars, only to come out on the other side looking like you've just been scourged by a regiment of Romans. And yet that's what God has done for us. And not just in the rising of the sun and the sending of the rains, but in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ.
who in the end was scourged by a regiment of Romans for real and then hung on a tree to die on our behalf. One who, who loved his enemies more than any other to the bitter end, laid down the rights on their behalf, on our behalf, and prayed for his persecutors. You remember it? Hanging there on the tree. Forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And showed more grace and shed more mercy and bled more love and turned his cheek again and again and gave up tunic and cloak and everything else. And went not one or two, but 10,000 miles on our behalf. So that beggars like you and me, enemies like you and me, would have a Savior to look to and to learn from and to lean on as we do the same following him. Let me leave you simply with a question then. What does your justice look like? What does the justice look like that you live by? Does it look like the vigilante sort of justice that we've become so accustomed to? That not only demands its rights, but does everything in its power to secure them? and does so at the cost of everyone else around. I'm not talking about taking up the rights of others, but demanding you and yours personally, because for some reason you still are what matters most. Is that the kind of justice you live by? Or is it a justice that looks like Jesus? of a selfless and self-sacrificial sort that lays down its rights on behalf of others, even for those who don't deserve it. Thank God that the justice of Jesus and the justice of the Father who sent him was a justice of that sort and not the other way around. More and more I got people telling me in life how much Emmett looks like me. I understood what they meant when he was younger. I've always been the one who people could compare the chubby cheeks of our kids to. I guess I get it a little bit though, right? I look at Emmett and I see a little bit of myself in him. Isn't that what it's meant to be like? As we more and more grow in to the reflection of our Father in heaven by Jesus' power, who did it first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'd, I do ask today, continue to beg you on our behalf that you would transform us more and more into that image. The image that was seen most clearly in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd make us anew from the inside out that this inside-out sort of righteousness would come to, to be reflected in our lives even today, even as we wait for it to be reflected for good in eternity to come. I pray these things in his name and trust you to do that. Amen.
for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.